This is the Epilogue Audio Experience. Forget the next five. In the next two years, I don't think we're going to be having conversations about is attribution a challenge. Conversation we're going to be having is can I make my compensation package more meaty where I'm paid for performance because I know my content can help you sell lipstick as opposed to look, I got a million views on your video. On this episode of Jamsters, my guest is one of those people who's had a front row seat of watching the digital landscape evolve in India since starting in 2008. Now, whether that was as a founder of a multiple award-winning digital agency or on the consumer side, understanding trends and the behaviors, Saveer Bajaj is the co-founder of the independent digital advertising agency Foxy Moron and the media network Zoo Media. Welcome on Jamster Suveer. Thanks so much for having me, Ardik. It's a pleasure. I'm looking really, really looking forward to chatting with you this evening. Foxy Moron is such a cool name, man. I mean, it must have been a conversation start for you at parties when you started out. <laughs> yeah, it's been a conversation starter at a lot of places, including parties as well. Funny story, actually, a lot of people uh, ask us how we came up with this name. And, you know, it's always uh, hardest to uh, work on your own name and your own brand. And you know, the brief that we gave ourselves was uh, that, you know, we had to we had to pick a name that was young and edgy and something that people would remember. And, you know, at least something that people would click on, you know. When when you started out, I believe in the 2008 period, um, uh, explaining digital would have been a challenge, right? I think educating consumers would have been a challenge. How did you sort of navigate that bit? Yeah, I think that was our biggest challenge for the first couple of years. I think 2008 to 2010, our biggest hurdle was educating customers that you need to spend money on digital because there was no real concept of digital marketing back then. Uh, digital marketing was limited to, hi, website, now do a CRM campaign, do a search campaign. And then all of a sudden we were saying, spend your money on content. And people are saying, what's content? And we were saying, spend your money on social. And people said, but do brands get on social? And it took us about two years of you know, doing a lot of regrowing and a lot of meetings to educate people. And then somewhere in, you know, some global headquarters in London or Paris or New York, some, you know, marketing VP said, you got to spend 5% of your budget on digital. And then these guys were like, but kya kare? And then someone said, you remember those kids who had come to us, call them and we'll ask them what to do. And mm. that really opened the gates for us post 2009, 2010. Interesting, because particularly when someone comes in and starts an agency or uh, any space in the ad business, uh, people do expect some sort of understanding of the space prior so that you can consult the clients that you're consulting um, or giving them advice on on building brands and forming opinions. You, I believe, uh, did not come from a traditional background, right? And I think in the early days, when you're so scrappy, when you're like four friends starting out at a, such a tender age, uh, what are some formative learnings that you've had back then, which hold you in good stead even right now? You know, like you rightly said, we didn't come from a media background. We didn't come from any backgrounds. We started the agency when we were 19 years of age. We had just finished the second day of college and we were still bumming around in college. And, you know, we had no formal work experience, no, uh, you know, training, no whatsoever. Um, the one formula that we had that actually got us going for the first few years was don't say no. You know, client asks you, can I do something? Say yes. Say yes and then figure it out, right? Because there's always a solution. There's always an answer. Uh, and especially with digital, when everything is so tangible, so measurable, you know, uh, if you say yes, there's bound, you're bound to figure it out. And unfortunately or fortunately, whichever way you look at it, India has been about 18 months behind the curve, you know, uh, when it comes to comparison with where we are in terms of our trajectory versus the West. So there are always great examples, case studies, agencies, brands to learn from. And therefore, when it came to paving the way, you know, it's reactive, proactive, right? There's a global client who comes and says, look, my Paris headquarters did this. Can you do something cool, cool like this for me? 
say yes and figure it out and then look at what all their competition has done you know and then you got to be proactive about this as well and you know like you said in your introduction for me as well not only did we have a ringside seat to watch digital grow we also had to actually write the story for digital in this country because there was no one else who was writing the story other than maybe a handful of 510 agencies you know who started us started out with us in the late 2000s so we also had the responsibility of writing this story for the industry at large which meant that not only do you have the responsibility to educate your clients but you also have the responsibility now to educate the industry at large and the only way to do that is by being proactive and being hungry and being pushy and you know and and keep trying to challenge yourself and push the mantle and be you know the best version of yourself today and be a better version of yourself tomorrow so when you started out um what was some of the projects that you ended up taking which you sort of realized that this is not the things that you want to do but uh, we've got to do because we've got to pay the bills when you're starting out so a lot of that actually in the first year and a half we did a lot of work where we just did whatever came we i remember the first project we did was we did creatives for a dance studio and we started doing you know uh, print and we started doing outdoor work and then i you know i looked at the work and i was like hey look we're get, getting into conventional advertising and maybe that's not the best route for us because to climb that ladder you're going to compete with you know agencies that are legacy agencies over 100 150 years old we made scrappy merchandise for you know uh, events we did event management we did anything that we could get our hands on right and automatically realized that these businesses are difficult they're challenging every business in life is difficult and challenging but we learned early uh, you know as to what businesses were scalable quickly what businesses required cash what businesses required working capital uh and therefore stayed away from doing very conventional high risk businesses like corporate merchandising and event management and slightly more mainstream stuff like that mainstream advertising and very quickly in 2009 we were very very clear that we would pivot and you know digress into digital and that would be our our forte and our focus going forward and and you know very um, uh, categorically put a full stop on everything else going forward i'm curious to know you mentioned uh, risk uh, for corporate merchandising or events why do you say that we worked with a um fashion designer who was doing a significantly large campaign around the world and required us to do a little bit of corporate merchandising for his campaign that meant that we had to produce the corporate merchandise up front and of course we got a small advance uh, to produce the corporate merchandise but they never eventually took delivery and of course we had to pay our vendor in totality but we were stuck with useless goods with the fashion designers a uh, blacklisted fashion designers uh you know a bunch of t-shirts lying in a go down and we mm-hmm. were out a few lakh of rupees with merchandise but no cash mm-hmm. and all of a sudden for 6 months 9 months 12 months we're stuck with uh useless product on you know in our on our shelves but with no cash in the bank and therefore realize that it's a high risk business and you know it, it, it's it's a cost plus business it's not exciting there's no you know uh, uh there's no learning curve doing this business it's not you know uh, we're not really adding any value uh and said that this is not you know something that that really excites us so when you started out uh that was the period that was uh, you know around the financial crisis um and uh, was it was it difficult landing clients was it easy because particularly since you did not have any leverage in uh, building credibility to a certain conversation and particularly on building brands um tell me about the early days of how did you pitch for clients how did you land these deals 
So it's interesting, right? Because when the world sees uh, economic slowdown or recession or inflation or whichever way you look at it from, uh, it usually leads to budget cuts and you usually lead your, your budget cutting starts with the most non-essential services, which is marketing and, you know, uh, and advertising. So it's ironic that when budgets get cut, the first few guys who lose out on their spends are the marketing guys, which was great for us in 2008, of course, because when advertising was cut, print and television got cut because they're really, really expensive forms of advertising. But if you have to compare apples to apples, digital is much more cost effective in, in, you know, uh, in terms of being a medium for advertising when it comes to comparing ourselves with print and digital, uh, sorry, print and television, uh, which meant that 2008 was actually sunrise for a lot of digital marketing by itself. Of course, at this point of time, we had no idea what any of this meant, A, because we were 19 years of age and we didn't understand the macroeconomic impact of, uh, you know, the slowdown that was happening around the world. That's number one. Number two is we were just starting an agency and we had no baseline. So it's not like we were doing a run rate of 100 rupees a month and then we saw a drop to 50 and we had to deal with the economic slowdown. We were starting with a base of zero and we also had no overhead as well, right? So we didn't, it's not like we had a team. It's not like we were paying massive salaries. It's not like we had a big office to support that overhead. So for us, we only looked at the upside of the opportunity, which is that people want to reduce their budgets on television and on print. So therefore, digital is an interesting option. But there was no downside because there was no baseline. There was no risk. There was no padded PNL that we had to cushion. Uh, so therefore, it became a very easy segue for us. I shouldn't say segue, a very easy introduction for us to dive in into this opportunity where uh, the world was slowing down and looking for a more cost-effective solution to deploy their funds in in order to acquire customers and build brands. Interesting you mentioned this because, uh, you know, often there is this period when you're starting out and especially after college uh, or, or those early years, the overheads, like you mentioned, are certainly so low that the risk-taking appetite becomes very, very high. Uh, do you think those decision-making changes, factors uh, would have affected your choices had you started later or would it have been still the same for you? So, you know, interestingly, while the overhead on the PNL is low when you start out at a young age, the biggest overhead that you're weighing actually at a young age is your opportunity cost, right? Because when you start out at the age of whatever, 19, 20, 21, um, you start, you know that for the first 10 years of your life, you're going to make no money, right? So you're committing to a life where for 10 years, you're not going to make any money, any serious money, any real money. If you make it, in the next 10 years, you're going to make a, hopefully you're going to make a lot of money. But if you don't make it, there's a sacrifice on time, which is your opportunity cost, which is your largest overhead, right? Having said that, to answer your question in a slightly more direct fashion, yes, if I did start out 10 years later in my life where, uh, you know, um, where the stakes were, where were, you know, swung in a completely different direction, would it have changed the way we operated? Hell yes. Uh, but would it, have, would it have changed the way we took risks? No. In fact, ours is a business uh, that breeds entrepreneurship and entrepreneurship every year. We kickstart new projects, new agencies, new divisions, literally every single year. And because we started out young, we have this bootstrapping you know, mentality and this agility and this lean sense of working where we're able to run systems in a lean fashion without bleeding ourselves dry of too much cash. In fact, interestingly, even though it's been 13 and a half years for us, we have been, we've remained completely independent, not fundraised, not taken money from... Uh, any investors, whether financial or strategic, uh, where our books are always debt free. We don't have loans in our books. Uh, and that's the way we operate. I mean, that's the, you know, uh, that's the business philosophy that we really operate with. So yes, I mean, had we started out 10 years later, the stakes would have been completely different. The stakes would have probably been higher. 
but risk taking appetite would not have decreased does not decrease this sort of uh, you know uh, segues me into a similar or or maybe a connected question that uh, there is tremendous uh, amount of upstarts that are happening in the digital space right now uh, compared to the period that you started in uh, you know discoverability for agencies do you think that is that is a challenge rather because uh, for example there are there are behemoths in the space who are who are vying for the bigger accounts uh, the smaller uh, upstarts who who come in the digital space would want to eventually be in that space but because they are not uh, you know cannibalizing into each other's businesses do you think it's 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 far more competitive to start off an agency right now compared to what it was earlier well yeah definitely it's a lot more competitive to start an agency today than it was 10 or 15 years uh, earlier but i i would disagree to say that uh that everyone's competing to be in each other's space what's nice is that the industry is also fragmented itself quite beautifully over the last 5 or 6 years uh you know and of course now the network agencies have entered this space over the last 6 or 7 years but there's been a great segmentation or a fragmentation of where agencies fall in the pyramid or in the ecosystem of vying for clients today it's not just about agencies right because today uh you could have a uh, you know independent and individual content creator with a laptop and an iphone or lap, uh, laptop and a smartphone in his or her hand who technically is competition to an agency because he or she has the ability to create kickass content and build brands literally sitting from the luxury of his or her home or a coffee shop with a stable internet connection and still be a competitor to an agency not in terms of their size or scale but in terms of their capability and their creativity but having said that the independent content creator or the independent digital media consultant as they call themselves today has a very focused approach in terms of what kind of brands they want to work with and while the number of upstarts as far as service side providers are concerned on the agency side the number of startups on the brand side have also increased exponentially which means that while the services side has has you know scaled exponentially in terms of being supply the amount of brands requiring these these uh, you know these these required digital requirements as well have also gone up exponentially not only has the number of brands increased but also the quantum of spends has increased drastically over the course of the last few years i remember when we started uh a a business digital would comprise of less than 1% of the overall media pie and today we comprise of over 20% of a 10 billion dollar adex and that just goes to show that this 35% plus compounded annual growth growth rate of the industry has consistently not only grown the size of the market but also significantly cannibalized on the market share print and television which means that there is significant room for agencies to to survive to coexist to complement each other to work with each other and not step on each other's toes and not compete with each other purely by virtue of the fact that everyone has now begun to find their space in the ecosystem with regards to their specialization what kind of brands they want to work with what size of brands they want to work with what value systems of brands they want to work with and all these things have started to matter so much today and these were not conversations that service providers had with each other 15 years ago you know these these traditional strategy consulting firms like the mckinsey and the bay and bcg deloitte firms uh have always had like a a table at at the at the seat at the table rather and and solutions for them and approaching them was far easier and now they've also started acquiring creative outfits um to 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 become that holistic solution provider to a certain brand uh is that competition for the traditional ad agencies or the digital agencies I think so I think it's a significant con- con- um, competition for the traditional agencies 
And you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, there have been some large, signif- significant global acquisitions around the world with regards to uh, consulting companies buying advertising agencies. And um, like you said, they have a seat at the table. They've got great market share. They've got great share of voice. They've got sh- great share of wallet with the clients that they consult as well. Um, you can look at it two ways, right? On one side, of course, they're competing for, you know, uh, top of mind and they're competing for uh, you know a seat at the table with agencies but on the other side now because they've also become agencies have also become acquisition targets for these guys it doesn't necessarily have to be looked at as competition it could be looked at as natural progression it could be looked at as succession planning uh, which is really interesting because previously this uh, this ecosystem that we used to kind of thrive inside of uh, comprised of marketing advertising PR events activation digital got added now of course there's you know as you're saying this consulting there's media that's get that gets thrown into it. There's tech that gets thrown into it. IT and IT enabled services. There's telecommunications that get thrown into it. So the ecosystem has grown so beautifully that on one hand you could look at it as competitive. On the other hand, you could look at it as complementary. And it's natural progression up or downstream of the ladder. And that's the way we usually look at it, right? Because when you're able to integrate your services or your solutions with your neighbors, whether they come from ITS or from telco, and you're able to then deliver results to your clients and meet their business needs in so much more of a cohesive fashion, that's when you become even more invaluable to your clients. So we always look at it as growth of the industry. The pie is expanding, not necessarily getting more competitive. Is it getting more competitive? Yes, of course. But that's not the same stead that we perceive it with because the breadth has increased, which means the value capitalization and the opportunity for the same has also increased for guys like us. Interesting. Um, it's difficult to think as a small startup, you know, Sumir, because uh, when when you are vying for this aspirational brand that you want to work with, any sector you pick, healthcare, automobile, fashion, whatever. Um, the so uh, as per what you're telling me that that the client size and the pie is increasing in uh, tandem with the number of agencies that are vying for the same business. So in a sense, uh, is there is there a market that is maturing and and it's not difficult rather to land these kind of projects i wouldn't say it's not difficult because um like i said so the uh, you've asked your question in two parts right you've asked your question one in context to demand and supply which is simple economics mm. the size mm. of the market has grown which means the demand is increased which means the supply is increased and for everyone that has a requirement there's there's someone to provide a solution so in that context no it's not difficult to land work because there is a requirement for good work but the difficulty comes from the perspective where today everyone is 20 times, 30 times, 40 times smarter than what they were 10 years ago, right? Everyone knows exactly what they want. And if you are not on the top of your game every single day, then it's very difficult to land work. Interesting you mentioned this, you know, in in the digital space, uh, 10, 11, 12 years seems like a lifetime um, of being independent. Uh, Have acquisition thoughts uh, ever occurred to you? Uh, The the attempt tempting feeling of, you know, uh, understanding a valuation, where do you stand, uh, the opportunity to global networks access. Uh, tell me more about the acquisition role. So it's been interesting over the last uh, nine years or so, the, you know, the, the big boys have a very simple format. It's, you know, build it. If you can't build it, then buy it. Right. And in India, most of the big boys who tried doing digital, they couldn't do it themselves. They realized that they need to grab land because a lot of big relationships are sitting with independent digital agencies. And while of course, 10 years ago, you know, the spends weren't as high, anyone who could forecast this, uh, you know, this trend would, would, you know, it would be foolish to assume that over the course of the next 10 or 20 years, digital is not going to occupy a significant,
can be a large piece of the pie. So when the big boys said, hey, look, we can't build it, let's buy it, uh, they start acquiring. Uh, so when it comes to acquisitions, of course, you know, we looked at this as well as early as 2000, I think 13 or 14, uh, we started getting the calls and the emails from, you know, all over the world. And we had people from literally the four corners of the globe come down to meet us. And of course, we considered this as well. And the reason why we considered it was, of course, on one side, you know, there's the learning curve working with a network and working with people who've been running businesses for, you know, centuries uh, if not longer. But on the other side of things, there was also the question of relevance. You know, as the pie got larger, we also realized that there are certain mandates that sit with net network agencies that may be over a period of time, globally negotiated contracts, globally negotiated rate cards, etc. which if we continue to be an independent agency, we would lose out on the opportunity to have to pitch to. And that was a wake up moment for us when we said, hey, look, you know, should we lose the opportunity to even be competitive for a pitch like this or should we shake hands with a network and you know see what's in it for us so of course we did explore the opportunity we even signed one term sheet in fact um, but i think the stars didn't align for us we mm. <laughs> we, uh, we we partnered with one of the softly partnered we didn't uh, sign our definitive documents with one of the the large holding companies and we did the whole dating and flirting but we didn't get into the marriage uh, you know the marriage scene and i'm actually really glad that we didn't because things have worked out for us really well over the last few years and uh, you know we've 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 used the independence to the biggest advantage where you know we've retained the ability for us to like i was talking about earlier we've retained the ability for us to take risks and make decisions to grow the business in any direction that we we deem best fit as opposed to the direction for which we have would have been acquired uh, from the 20 odd agencies that I spoke about you know who were around about a decade ago 18 of them today have been acquired and partner with networks we amongst uh, you know we're amongst the two that didn't partner with networks and continue to remain independent and continue to thrive and enjoy our independence actually Interesting. So, you know, the digital nature of, of the work that agency side or, or leading the business side of things is such a fluid uh, feeling, fluid experience, right? Because it's constantly changing uh, either the client side or the consumer trends. What are some things that you've seen over this past decade of leading business, the evolution in terms of either the work culture or business of lending more projects evolve in your perspective? I feel that digital didn't have a very difficult time integrating itself into the larger advertising and marketing narrative. So when it came to, you know, and because you spoke about culture, when it came to culture, because digital and social was very hot 10 or 15 years ago, it attracted a lot of great talent from outside the industry, from people who hadn't necessarily started their careers working in a traditional mainline advertising agency, because digital was quote unquote sexy. So it had very low barriers to entry. It appealed to a generation that grew up with a cell phone in their hand, as opposed to grow up with a newspaper in their hand. And in fact, it also ticked off the generation that grew up with the newspaper in their hand watching the 9pm news, because all of a sudden they were disturbed by the fact that there was this gadget that was pinging and beeping 14 times a day of 40 times a day or whatever the case may be. So the resistance to adopt digital from the silverhead guy has actually opened up the can of worms for us so much more swiftly than we would have imagined. But when the silverhead guys realize that we're just another medium and just another channel to tell the same story to maybe an evolved consumer, or maybe a new consumer, the, integra the integration became beautiful. 
So while we had the freedom to build our own work culture from the perspective of, you know, uh, how we run our offices, what kind of people we hire, the larger culture in terms of serving our clients, business needs, helping them grow their brands, helping them grow their businesses became a very succinct narrative very, very easily and very seamlessly, which is why over the course of the last five or seven years, going back to your previous question, when people said, when you asked uh, about people's experiences during mergers or acquisitions, you know, funneling into larger networks, while the first few years of any consolidation is difficult and troublesome, over a period yeah. of time, they find their feet because the mm. cultural congruity comes from the fact that we all sit under the large umbrella of marketing and advertising. We may have different ways of working. We may attract a different talent. We may appeal to a younger cohort in terms of a target audience. We may be culturally slightly different uh, in terms of, uh, you know, in terms of pop culture, in terms of uh, cultural insights for, for audiences that have grown up online versus audiences that have grown up online. But the larger cultural congruity came very easily and naturally because we do sit under this umbrella of advertising and marketing. Today, when someone asks me what I do, I say I work in advertising and marketing. I don't say I work in digital because digital is just the medium. The industry mm -hmm. is still advertising and marketing. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting that you mentioned this because uh, about, about culture when clients have many a times unreasonable deadlines and uh, internally uh, workers also struggle with maybe pay parity and lesser pays. Um, is there is there a way the industry has been able to navigate this issue? I, I remember reading actually one of the articles, I think last year or maybe earlier, I don't know when it was released, uh, that France has a culture where it's actually called right to disconnect law, where after like, I think 6pm, you're not allowed to send even emails or phone calls. Um, has, has, has that trend sort of adopted in agencies, particularly because the culture can be probably sometimes ruthless, uh, given, you know, at the expense of health of the employees and stuff. How do you, how do you think about that? How do you navigate that? You know, Hardik, this is something that I speak about quite vociferously. Um, I don't think this problem is a digital problem alone. I don't think this problem is an advertising and marketing problem alone, to be honest, either. And people are working past midnight every day. You look at bankers, you look at consultants, uh, people are working through the day, through the night, through the, through the weekend. I don't think this is an advertising problem alone. Of course, you know, we follow our industry. So we read A&M journals every day. We read articles about mental health and, you know, and as an agency, we're quite, uh, you know, quite conscious about this. And, and I'll tell you how we're conscious about this as well. But to answer your question first, I don't think this is a digital or an advertising problem. This is an Indian problem. We do this to ourselves, right? There's always someone who's ready to do work for you cheaper or faster or, you know, uh, maybe a quality won't be as good, but there's always someone ready to work for you cheaper or faster. And we do this to ourselves. This actually dates back to several generations where India is a young country, right? Where, you know, where we, we got our independence all of 75 years ago and we have a lot to prove as an economy, you know, our grandparents, uh, post independence, you know, my grandparents came from the other side of the border when they came to, you know, to Bombay, uh, they had nothing but the clothes on their back and it was about starting from scratch, right? Um, literally starting from scratch and, and, and putting two square meals on the table every single day. Our parents then got into saving mentality, right? And they started building capital. They started building wealth. Our generation gets the benefit of that. Our generation doesn't grow up with the insecurity of not having two meals on the table, which is why our generation has got the benefit of potentially a good education, potentially having you know, done a MBA or whatever, masters or higher, you know, higher education. Our generation has the luxury of not necessarily having to save 60% of your salary every month. Our generation has the luxury of 
being able to switch a job every two or three years because you don't need this the financial stability and, and security that your parents required when it comes to creating wealth you know and because of that uh you know uh we feel as an as a country and economy we feel the need to prove ourselves continuously because we're a growing economy if you look at ourselves you know at, at 2.6 trillion dollars and you compare ourselves with the largest economy in the world where a mere 10% even though our population is four times the size of the largest economy in the world which is the united states of america so because we're a young economy i feel like we're doing this to ourselves with the penchant need to prove you know that we have something to show and we're growing this economy and to talk about the second point that you spoke about when it comes to advertising and marketing specifically the in, the broad you know uh, vertical that we sit inside is we're all creatives we're artists at the end of the day right we're not fine artists we're commercial artists there was no idea or there was no concept of commercial art a few years ago the concept of commercial art is very very new but the concept of fine art goes back to the egyptian and the indus valley and the harappa mohenjo-daro the indus valley civilization right the idea of an artist back in the day was a a potter the art uh, idea of an artist was a poet the idea of an artist was a sculptor right sistine chapel and everything you know um how were these people compensated they were compensated in the form of love right if the king loved what they did he would give them his ring or he would give them you know his necklace and you know organize theater in the in the shakespearean times you know and there was no the value attached with art was that of people's love it wasn't that of people's money and when we started to attach the value of money to art it bastardized the profession and when it bastardized the profession unfortunately it fell to the bottom of the pecking order because the minute you you try to attach the value of money to art you're trivializing it and because it got trivialized there was no value of money attached to art and it started at the bottom of the pecking order so because of that artists now creatives today have to break through this glass ceiling of commanding their value premium in exchange for what we call currency or money today and when we're able to do that will the pension need to stop proving ourselves and working till midnight every day and what you spoke about right the disconnect post 5 or 6 or 7 pm you you're not obligated to look at your phone and look at anyone's emails or messages or e- or whatever the case may be because you don't need to constantly be hustling right you have the right to separate your personal life from your professional life but you do that when you're secure about the fact that your professional life is is going to be able to provide for you over the course of the next 1 2 5 10 20 years and today i feel that as an industry we don't have that security a lot most people say that you work in education or in advertising because of passion and that's true because they're two of the most poorly uh, you know paid industries when it comes to uh, you know when it comes to hiring and uh, when when it comes to hiring talent so you're very right in terms of your assumption but do i feel like the problems are a lot more systemic in nature extrapolating on that point uh, when it comes to work culture uh, you know being us millennials uh, and and gen z further um what are your observations around attrition in the industry and uh, how do you ensure people stay uh, especially when the opportunities for someone to shift are so many how do you ensure employee retention So I mean you hit the hit the nail on the head with your question attrition is I think the biggest challenge that any employer faces today um and it's it's embarrassing for us as an industry to be to admit this that attrition rates cross 30 40% annually year on year and 
with any agency right with uh, this is not a problem specific only to digital but with any kind of agency attrition rates are crossing 30 40% year on year uh, and you notice that people at you know junior levels don't end up sticking on for more than 2 years and it's just become accepted now that we don't ex- uh, expect people to stick around for more than 2 years and i feel that the mere acceptance of this fact by itself is disgusting you know uh, by itself um but why does this happen right on one hand you're saying people have a lot of options etc which is very true because there are 750 agencies today that do what we do versus seven agencies that did what we did 15 years ago um so people have a lot of options they want to explore their creativity they want different kinds of challenges they want to be pushed they want to be you know provoked uh you know now also people are globally curious so they want a larger canvas to work on um wh- why do people join an agency typically right people join join an agency because they've either bought into you know the brand of the agency they bought into uh the clients that they work for they bought into the work quality which is the most important thing that you know the work speaks loudest for itself they bought into you know key leaders stories as well you got a great you know creative director that you want to work with or a great art director that you want to work with whose work you followed for the last 5 years and now you want to work under this person and you want this person to be your mentor and unfortunately what ends up happening is you spoke about millennials but there's a generation that's one step ahead of the millennials as well which is the gen z generation as well you know that that's entered the workspace with a slightly more entitled mindset than millennials like us have right and we spoke about the concept of security earlier when we spoke about our parents generation and the generation of wealth and the security that you know they've created for us and you look at people 10 years younger than us and look at the amount of security that they have look at the amount of exposure that they have look at the schools that they go to look, look at the education educational opportunities that they have look at the number of kids today that go abroad to study versus 10 years ago right look at the opportunities and exposure that they've had and what that builds is it builds a certain sense of entitlement today this is a reality there's no point complaining about it there's no point pulling our hair out saying oh my god you know uh, these are the challenges that we have to deal with this this is our reality so we shouldn't call them challenges today but like i said what we have to be conscious of is why are people buying into the story are they buying into the brand story are they buying into the work story are they buying into the leader story and if they buy into these stories and these three stories are your strongest stories to tell then these are the three stories that will actually retain people as well what's sad is that we get a lot of people who segue into this industry because it's an easy first job you'll find that at least 25% of people get into digital because there are no barriers to entry you don't need a, a you don't need an academic qualification like a lawyer or doctor and engineer true. needs true you can get into this industry for 2 years because you need 2 years of quote unquote work ex because you want to go for your masters your mba and then you come back and you have nothing to do with digital or with advertising ever before that sucks right that's what we need to stop that's what we can stop for people that quit my agency that go to another agency or quit the other agency that come to mine that we can't in fact that we should encourage because that's what forces us to be healthy that's what forces us to be competitive but it's the first breed that we actually want to stop because this is a low barriers for entry industry so like i said you focus on building a healthy brand a healthy culture focus on doing good work focus on getting your leaders to buy into your story and having leaders around you that stick with you and people will stay with you everyone won't stay but for every 20 guys if 5 guys stay then you have a winning formula curious to know now that we've spoken on the on the employee side of uh, the industry i'm curious to know that when you look at gen z and millennials as a tg for a certain brand because they are aggressively going to be uh, the largest part of the spending population in the country and probably globally as well um attention going forward is going to be the key currency right i think getting their attention getting them to spend um what are some behaviors that you find as a consumer 
that you believe are pivotal to address uh, their buying needs or aspirations so i'll answer this question not only from their buying needs perspective because i think buying is still bottom of the funnel and a lot of what we do is top and middle of the funnel as well um so what's beautiful is and you know when we started this agency this industry all of 15 years ago you know the first lesson that we had is that the formula that television and print uses one size fits all and this industry doesn't function on that formula right digital doesn't function on the one size fits all True. formula True. today we have the ability to be as creative and and segment our users in hundreds of different fashions even if we bucket them generically under <clears throat> gen z or millennial we still segment them in hundreds of buckets inside of that as well and the most important thing when it comes to content consumption and the reason i talk about content consumption first is because content is the first tangible that anyone interacts with right whether it's a youtube ad or whether it's a banner that you click on or whether it's the copy that you're reading when you're purchasing uh, a product on e-commerce or whether it's a review of a movie that you're reading on a blog it's all content it's the first it's the you know it's the top of the funnel <clears throat> the content consumption patterns have now and like you said attention becomes the biggest currency where does that come from that comes from the relevance that content has to our tg today right and the sphere of that relevance today has changed dramatically over the course of the last 2 years there is a lot of stuff that is culturally relevant today which we need to be a part of we need to integrate ourselves into what existing culture is versus try and create culture great uh, great uh, example with what netflix does in terms of you know like i said their cultural congruity in terms of how they integrate um uh, you know influencers or memes into into traditional marketing which you'd never imagine 5 or 6 years ago when it comes to buying i think you know um to talk about the first part of your question that you actually asked me and sorry for segueing um it's it's you know this paradox of choice is something that people talk about quite aggressively today mm. uh with e-commerce having you know opened the landscape so aggressively to your options when it comes to shopping and people constantly telling you what the right thing for you is or the right brand for you is or the right variant for you is the right product for you is and when i say people it could be anyone it could be the brand today it could be the you know the celebrity endorsement it could be the influencer it could be whatever anywhere you know through the funnel really so as to speak people always trying to sell it to you the paradox of choice has been the biggest i should say divisional split for our our generation and the generation below us Three or four years ago, we loved e-commerce. We said, "Wow, you know, I go to buy a new cell phone, and I have eighty-five options inside my price range that meet the requirements that I have." But today, I go to buy a pair of shoes, and I play tennis. So the tennis shoes that I wear are important to me, so that I don't slip and fall and hurt myself. If I had eighty-five options, I would lose my mind. But if I had three options and I had to pick one of three, it would make my life so much simpler. True, so it's, paradox it, of it's, choice, a, it's a paralysis of choice. True, absolutely, true. has become such a critical divisional paradox with our generation. I think that's become very influential because you asked about the buying patterns and the shift in buying patterns of this generation. So when it comes to influencers, uh, you know, uh, let's let's say typically I would see uh, the the ad of let's say a headphone, right? And I'd see a Google ad first, and I'd see an influencer first. Um, and when I as a consumer get hit with a Google ad first, I probably would not, or even if there's a discount, let's say ten percent or twenty percent discount, compared to what an influencer would give me, um, I would probably believe the influencer first rather than the Google ad. That would be one ob- observation from my end. Now, do you also believe in tandem that the way influencer marketing works or the creator uh, you know economy works is is that currently uh, you know it's it's a per post fee or per branded post fee that they have uh, 
in in when you think about the compensation models for a creator or an influencer which earlier was probably a celebrity do you think anything is broken in the system definitely and it's interesting you asked me this question actually because of course over the last 5 or 6 years as this influencer marketing industry has blossomed and boomed you know the creators and influencers have obviously been the biggest gainers but today like in slightly more evolved markets in the western world brands have woken up and they say great we pay influencers all this money what's in it for us because we're paying like you said on a per post basis today you ask influencer influencers to report metrics back to you they're happy to come and tell you how many views you got on a video right that's simple right there's a view ticker and there's a view count but if you go and ask them to try and justify the quality of engagement they don't they can't do that they don't do that right because uh it's it's now it's starting to uh brands are starting to get smarter and they're expecting you know better metrics reported and and this is still you know vanity right when you talk about likes and shares and comments and that's still vanity and you get one step deeper and you say look how many click throughs did you get on your post onto my website and then you take you go one step deeper and you say look how many people added my product to their shopping cart and then you go one step deeper and you say look how many people eventually ended up buying my product right and that's when you look at whether the influencer was really relevant to my campaign or not and it's beautiful because in other parts of the world this has begun to happen and it's going to happen here as well in fact we've you know we've we built a proprietary tool called shopper which in fact is a influencer marketing social commerce tool for instagram for influencers to get remunerated every single time that they're able to make a sale for a brand so is this, in, is this in is this in perpetuity by the way yes it's in perpetuity of course oh, nice if okay. you're selling to brands if you're selling product in perpetuity why should you not be compensated in perpetuity we had this insight actually when we were working with one of our largest advertisers that helped build this agency called l'oreal and they have a you know flagship brand of theirs called maybelline and alia bhat was their brand ambassador for a brief period um and we did some you know events with her and we did some shoots with her and then they said you know what are you guys doing on instagram with her and then we did this instagram campaign with her and alia bhat is an icon in india right everyone knows alia bhat and then we looked at alia bhat you know slightly more categorically and we said why is this content really not performing and not surprising at all 75% of all of alia bhat's followers were men of course mm. so alia bhat okay. is advertising spending lakhs of rupees of maybelline's money per post and per video etc to advertise maybelline which is a beauty product for young girls to 75% of our audience who are men what do we expect this post to do for us right and it starts with just being aware about this it starts with being conscious about this saying that eventually we're doing all of this why do we do all kind of advertising and marketing eventually we do this to build brands and to sell more product right that's the end goal for any advertising and marketing to build a brand and sell more product if we're not building brands and selling more products then why do we do this and it's important that influencers buy into this narrative because the days where people are getting paid 5 even 10 lakh rupees for a post are going to end very soon at the end of the day the beauty of our medium is that everything is trackable and everything is measurable so if i spend 10 lakh rupees on an influencer's post versus 10 lakh rupees on a google cpc campaign to acquire customers to my website where am i going to get more roi and eventually marketers are going to start thinking like this so in order to preempt this if influencers can start thinking like this and adopt this narrative and change their compensation structure yes you will get paid for your creative yes you'll get paid for your content but can the long tail of your comp come from performance orientation come from performance driven social commerce the answer to that is yes it's a win win for everyone it's a win win for you because you earn like you said in perpetuity and the brand keeps selling product every single day the post is live or the video is live the brand keeps selling product which is beautiful so has uh, i mean you mentioned about vanity metrics so is is attribution a challenge uh, when it comes to uh, engagement finding engagement with the with the 
with a certain influencer not at all today ad tech has gotten so evolved where we are able to track full funnel attribution right from the top of the funnel to the bottom of the funnel all stages and attribution is not a challenge at all attribution becomes a channel challenge when you work with marketplaces for instance amazon mm. does not let you place a pixel on their on their on you know on your product information page on their website attribution becomes a channel a challenge when so social media networks have in app browsers in which you are you don't own the session so there are certain you know limitations when it comes to attribution but i think you know uh, with the direction that social commerce is moving in with the direction that guys like shopify are moving in with brands becoming conscious that d2c is the way to go and e-commerce has paved the way for d2c and we don't necessarily need to sit inside aggregator models of marketplaces in the next 5 years i don't think forget the next 5 in the next 2 years i don't think we're going to be having conversations about is attribution a challenge conversation we're going to be having is can i make my compensation package more meaty where i'm paid for performance because i know my content can help you sell lipstick as opposed to look i got a million views on your video very interesting so um what do you think about micro influencers who have about like the 1000 plus or 2000 or 5000 range followers compared to someone who has a lot of following but may not have a lot of engagement how do you look at influencers when you hire with a certain brand So you gave the example yourself when you said that there's a Google ad that was served to you for a pair of headphones and then then you saw an influencer video, you know, for the same pair of headphones and you were more likely to believe the influencer video. The Google ad and the influencer video both have a very specific role to play in the advertising and marketing ecosystem, right? Usually when there's a new brand or there's a new product that you don't know about, what what's the first thing you need to do? You need to build awareness, right? and people look at mass media to build awareness people do television commercials to build awareness people do display advertising right which is google display networks to build awareness simultaneously let's say you build awareness you build a certain amount of interest for your product now you've got a bit of consideration so suvir is going to buy new headphones next week because his old headphones got lost left them in the taxi whatever the case may be and now i'm in market to buy a pair of headphones so i've looked at 3 i've looked at 4 i've looked at 5 i've looked at 6 pairs of headphones on amazon and whatever on flipkart whatever the case may be and now i'm discuss i'm you know debating between bot and between bose and whatever the case may be and then i happen to run into an influencer and i happen to run into an influencer who's got 7.2 million followers who says oh i use bot blah 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 which is great and then i happen to listen to an influencer who's 1600 followers who's a musician and the musician tells me that i use bose headphones because of the high fidelity and you know rich bass and blah 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 and i'm like hey this guy knows his stuff because he's actually a musician himself he probably understands the tech that goes inside this these headphones far better than someone who's a you know a comedian or a memer or a you know streamer or something like that who's probably doing this on the back of a collab and when it comes to building consideration for me the guy with 1600 followers has hit the nail on the head So, but the guy with the million followers, or the six million followers, what has he done? Going back to what I spoke about first, he's helped me build awareness for my brand. But the guy who's got a thousand followers or ten thousand followers, who's a subject matter expert, has helped me build consideration for my brand. So there's a role mm. for everyone in the ecosystem, and as so long as marketers are conscious of what the role is, so long as creators are conscious where they fit inside this larger ecosystem, they can thrive. If everyone picks up every brand, then why would you take anyone seriously as the consumer? that's that's a valid point you know when when creators or influencers want to create a certain piece of content and uh, let's on the brand side a brand manager sits and wants to integrate the brand in in a certain piece of content that they're producing um i'm sure there must be some creative differences that come in right because one for the other feels like an obstruction 
um how do you sometimes navigate these choppy waters or 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 how do you sort of look at these conversations when you go into these boardroom discussions particularly because you are at the uh let's say the center point of both of these parties so it's interesting right because the guy on the other side of the table says look this is my brand at the end of the day if my product doesn't sell then it's my neck on the line right it's my brand it's my job it's my company whatever the case may be the guy on my side of the table says hey look we just, we appreciate the fact that it's your brand but you've appointed me because i am a subject matter expert and i know this medium better than you so if you're coming and telling me look do this then what the hell are you paying me for right so these creative differences come in from the perspective of differentiating ideologies not necessarily differentiating creatives no two human beings are going to be creatively aligned i mean sorry i'm saying that slightly callously there obviously a lot of human beings that are creatively hmm. aligned but it's not natural to expect two people to creatively align every single time hmm. what's you know what what as creatives what we need to be conscious of and like i said about half an hour ago we are commercial artists we're not fine artists we are not here to express ourselves we're not in the business of expressionism i can be a musician i can be an artist i can be a filmmaker if i want to be in the business of expressionism i'm in the business of selling makeup right and that's my reality so my creative expressionism needs to help my client sell more makeup if interesting. my creative helps i have to interject here because because there's a very interesting thing that you mentioned um so what it essentially telling me is that does or should an influencer or a creator who's creatively very inclined towards whatever piece of art that they consume should also have a business hat on their head while they are conversing with clients 100% if you don't have a business hat then you're irrelevant to your client because like i said we are in this business to help our clients sell more product that's the end goal if i if i do not understand what selling more my, more product for my client means then how am i relevant to my client so numbers don't matter according to you in the larger perspective it's about more about engagement about how deep they go can you can you attribute to a certain sale is that what you mean to say when you say numbers you mean numbers of followers followers yeah yeah numbers of followers don't like i told you right even in the case of someone like alia but the millions of followers she had didn't make a difference because 75% of them were men so the relevancy of the followers matters the relevancy of the content matters the relevancy of the viewership matters the relevancy of the comments matter the relevancy of the likes matter the relevancy of the dislikes matter Hmm. 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 So when you talk about any any particular uh, influencer or any creator, uh, are you looking for consistency in their content about any area that they particularly focused on, or uh, it's okay for you to see that the content creator is spread across multiple areas, and you are happy to still engage with these people? So with every creator, there are two things that a creator must know inside out. Right. One is. as a creator what do i talk about what do i stand for right today i am an enthusiast about let's say tennis right so i love my tennis i love outdoor sports i love surfing diving hiking skiing these are two things that i am very passionate about if i was a creator today and i started talking about tomato ketchup maybe people won't take me seriously what do i know about tomato ketchup what do i know about the ingredients what do i know about the acidity what do i know about the quality of soil in which tomatoes were grown right so an influencer should know a creator should know what he or she is good at and become a and establish themselves as a subject matter expert the second thing that the creator should be conscious of is their audience what is your audience like what are their tastes and interests if i create content in a certain fashion does it work with my audience just because i like talking about tennis and i do p2c videos with me giving a 60 second commentary about the us open match doesn't necessarily mean 
that content will work with my videos uh, sorry with my uh, with my audiences but if i'm able to package that into short 15 second reels with snappy music and my audience relates well to that then am i able to build a certain amount of curiosity with you know my audience with regards to my content so creators should be conscious of two things one what their jam is and two what actually works with their audience there are a lot of creators today who call themselves lifestyle enthusiasts who do absolutely everything what they're chasing they're chasing numbers right so mm-hmm. i got a million followers and i do food i do lifestyle i do fashion i do travel i do everything basically means i'm up for any brand collaboration right this is two years i'll yeah. get lots of brands to collaborate right the third year which brand would want to collaborate with me true True. So this is actually the place where I was coming from because a lot of people have become lifestyle influencers and uh, I don't know, man. So like influencers is such a buzzword right now. It's an overkill maybe in some ways. Um, but, uh, but a lot of people are doing a lot of things uh, just for getting brands on board and probably making, and I understand their perspective as well. I respect it too because they want to make it a lifestyle choice for them, uh, make it sustainable. So maybe any brand is okay with them. Uh, but, but as a brand, it might be confusing uh, for, uh, you know, who to, who to work with. Well, yeah, there's definitely that. And there's the concept of competition as well, right? Today, if I'm a lifestyle influencer, like we said, lifestyle sits at the intersection of food, travel, fashion, everything. What are you telling your audiences, right? What is the messaging you're bombarding your audiences with? And how how do you create a community around you when you're talking about so many different things? Right? Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. So because at the end of the day, this model is a content community commerce model, right? You're starting with content, which is what people are watching and consuming. You're building a community of people with like-minded interests, like-minded value systems. And eventually you have to create a commerce touch point in order to be continuously relevant to the business of the brand. So what community are you creating around you if you're talking about everything under the sun? And that's something that you have to be conscious of. Like I said, be conscious of your audience is number two as well. If you're not conscious of that and you're just chasing that one million follower number, then how are you going to be relevant to your audience and then therefore to your brand. So you mentioned content community and commerce. So you've just recently started off with a digital men's lifestyle publication. Um, I believe last year or this year, sometime this year, right? Yeah. Two months ago, three months ago. Two months ago. Fantastic. So congratulations on that, by the way. Thank you. Uh, but uh, what was the need? I'm, I'm, I'm curious to understand because I'm sure there are platforms that exist out there, uh, at least global platforms that exist. Uh, was this more Indian specific context? Yeah, definitely. Actually, the need came from two places on, on, you know, on one hand, we've as an agency, actually, we've done a lot of work marketing to women. Like I said, our flagship client while we were growing the agency was L'Oreal and we managed um, several brands, including Maybelline and L'Oreal Paris and uh, L'Oreal Professional and Garnier and several brands inside the L'Oreal mix that were predominantly targeted to women over the course of the last decade. And then as a result, it kind of became a rite of passage for women's brands to kind of pass through us as an agency because we became subject matter experts when it came to, you know, developing content and communities and commerce opportunities for <clears throat> for women, uh, you know, brands that target women online. And um, when we looked at the men's, you know, ecosystem and we realized that, of course, you know, while the women's ecosystem is considerably more developed because you've got a platform for women who, you know, who are, you know, Bollywood fanatics or then a platform for women who are mums or then an e-com platform for women who are mums or now e-commerce makeup platforms. And like, it's gotten really, really segmented. The reason why it's gotten segmented is because if you throw a stone, six out of 10 people that the stone touches are men on the internet, right? Because the internet population is skewed towards male in India, which is the reality of our situation. So therefore building and developing male owned communities wasn't necessarily as such of a focus. Today, if you look at the largest male communities, well, 
shouldn't call them communities, but la- la- the largest male advertising opportunities on the internet. Obviously, you've got to take out Google and Facebook, which are platforms and ecosystems in their own right. But the first, the number one that you'll see is, and maybe take out Times Internet Limited as well, because it's a company that owns a plethora mm-hmm. of publications. Mm-hmm. But the number one independent publisher today is Hotstar. And why is mm-hmm. it the number one publisher today because that talks to men is because they have the rights to stream cricket, right? And there are 140 mm. million men that log in to watch cricket when you have the IPL and the ICC World Cup and Champions Trophy and all the other exciting cricket that's on, you know, in perpetuity. Um, but but that's cricket focused, right? If you look at ESPN Crick Info, that's cricket focused. You look at money control, that's stocks focused. You look at sports kira, that's sports focused. Right. Uh, and a lot of these are, you know, very focused destinations that are building focused communities, which which I really, really appreciate, right? But when I took a step back, because we also serve as the agency for some of the biggest magazines that have now gone digital. We work with, uh, you know, we've worked with the Worldwide Media Group, which is essentially film fair. And, right. and you know some of the Mm -hmm. biggest legacy magazines in the country and um, stuff like that and and we've helped them digitally transform over the course of the last decade and we look at you know the the space of lifestyle content for people in India and you look at men and on one end of the spectrum you've got GQ which is very niche and you know which is uh, you know uber premium in terms of its targeting and therefore its brand associations with a Samsonite and with a BMW and with a Rolex and stuff like that and then on the other end of the spectrum you've got a men's XP who's doing a great job by the way uh, you know which is Masi which is significantly Mm -hmm. Masi and appeals to the new India and and for even from a numbers perspective, right, if you stack up a GQ and a men's XP and, you know, they, they stack it about one in three million monthly active users plus, and then everything else from an FHM to a Ask Men to a Men's Health to a Man's World, they're sitting on the bottom of the spectrum doing sub 100K monthly active users. So not mm-hmm. so active digital communities just yet, you know, still focusing on legacy print brands. So we notice this massive, large gap that's sitting inside GQ and men's XP at the moment from the perspective of being a, a lifestyle men's brand that's able to build community around lifestyle men's habits and also if you and and the same narrative that i've been you know championing over the last 15 minutes with you saying that it's not just about consuming content it's about building a community and it's not just about building community but it's about showing return on investment to your brands showing that your brands that if i write a review for your gillette razor there will be a thousand men that will buy this razor over the course of the quarter, right? Mm-hmm. It's building that content community commerce narrative that eventually validates why a brand would advertise with you, why a brand would spend money on your platform as opposed to just get the banners and just get the videos and just get the blog articles, which are great because they get the word out for this new razor. But what happens when the role of digital eventually is to drive sales? That can't only be Amazon's job. That can't only be Google's job because if it is, then we're making their jobs too easy for them. Interesting. So now what are you pursuing? What are you after? What are your goals? What are you chasing? So with man's life, um, overall, I mean to say, so what we've done over the last uh, year and a half is we've set up a holding company called Zoom Media, which sits over the agencies that we run and operate at the moment. We've got about six or seven agencies today that operate in the space of content, media, data, and technology. Um, Foxy One, of course, being the oldest and largest agency. Uh, inside of the network, uh, we're in the process of building a tech products company that focuses purely on social commerce. We're in the process of building a media company that a publishes Man's Life, which is a content community content community commerce destination for men. B publishes podcasts. I launched my own podcast earlier this year called mm-hmm. Eight Eight Three to Infinity. Uh, we're now getting into the business of producing long-form content in the non-fiction space for platforms mm-hmm. such as Amazon Prime, Discovery, Alt Balaji, uh, and getting in the business of producing long-form content. Uh, we we championed two very 
very large narratives aggressively. One is the O2O narrative, which is the offline to online narrative or the mm. online to offline narrative mm. as part of our zoo ecosystem in which uh, we talk quite vehemently about the importance of the offline and online marketing worlds coming together to create an integrated funnel. Uh, and we've recently just partnered with, you know, an events and activation agency uh, in the next month or two, which we'll talk about where we create congruity between offline and online funnels. And our most exciting project that we're working on right now today is called the Naya Bharat. Uh, and the, the thesis for the Naya Bharat is that we're roughly at about 700 million active internet users in India today. Very quickly, we're going to be a billion active internet users in India today, just by virtue of penetration and geo and smartphones and stuff like that, which means that the next 300 million people that come onto the internet in India today, they're not going to be speaking in English. They're not going to be coming mm -hmm. from Delhi and Bangalore and Bombay and Pune and Hyderabad. Mm -hmm. They're going to be coming from tier two. They're going to be coming from tier three. They're going to be speaking in languages that we don't speak. They're going to be consuming content that we don't consume. They're going to be watching shows that we've never even heard of, listening to music that we've never heard of, listening to artists that we've never heard of, consuming content on platforms that we don't use, Moj, ShareChat, Takata, Chingari, mm -hmm. platforms that we're not you know, uh, primarily familiar with. So what is the Naya Bharat going to do when they get on the internet. And if we're not able to answer that question today, we're going to be irrelevant as marketeers because the next 700 million people to come on the internet today, why 300, is Naya Bharat. And mm -hmm. they're the ones who are going to dictate when it comes, dictate content consumption. They're going to dictate commerce opportunities. We're still, you know, the refined few percent that sit on the top of the spectrum. And if we don't assume, if we don't address the critical mass of Naya Bharat, then as marketers, we ourselves are losing out on the biggest opportunity the internet will present itself in the next decade. Fantastic. Suveer, it's been such a pleasure chatting up with you and understanding various perspectives, various hats you wear. Thanks for taking the time out and doing this. Thanks for having me, Ardik. It's been a pleasure. Lovely chatting with you and all the best to you. If you enjoyed this episode of Jamsters, please make sure you subscribe to EPLog Media and all major podcasting platforms such as Spotify, GeoSavan, Ghana, Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts, among many others, for upcoming episodes. You know, I love listening from each one of you. So please make sure you share this podcast with your friends and family and your colleagues. And please make sure to drop a comment on Apple Podcasts if you're listening there. And also, if you're listening on EPLog Media, they've recently launched a feature where you can comment on the particular episode too. Your support is my fuel. You can connect with me on Instagram at the rate Hardik or on LinkedIn too. Catch you on the other episode.